Welcome to The Local. I'm your host, Mark Horner, founder of Fairhaven Wealth Management here in Wheaton, Illinois. So what is wealth management? Well, it's a lot more than just stocks and bonds. It's about taking care of your family, your career, and your community, and maybe even having a little fun along the way. That's what wealth management is all about. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, This is Mark Horner from Fairhaven Wealth Management. And uh, with me today is Mark Salisbury, founder of Tuition Fit and Pathways Planning and Insights. And we're talking all things the college application process. Before you introduce yourself, Mark, can I throw out my credentials? I think you ought to throw those in. I think they're important. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that clarification. So for this particular topic, the the important credentials are... Uh, what I'm in year 23 of being a financial advisor, have four children, three of which have gone through or are currently in the college process. So I've lived this on the front lines, this particular topic. And then I'm the son of a sitting college president who has been a college president for, uh, I think it's 40 years. So I, this topic is near and dear to my, to my heart, both personally and professionally. So top that Salisbury on, on credentials. (laughs) Well, I'm the son of a preacher, man. So (laughs) I don't think I got you there. Um, I spent my whole career in higher education in different sorts. I spent part of it coaching college soccer, uh, which by the way, not a profession that I'd recommend in the upper Midwest. Um, It gets a little cold late in the year. Did that for about a decade, went back to do a PhD study in how all this thing works, and then spent the next decade writing, consulting, trying to help colleges do what they do better. And as a function of that, ended up realizing that you really need to help families understand this process as well, because from the outside looking in, it's just a mess. And so in 2018, I started the Tuition Fit Project to build a data set of the prices that students actually pay. And a year ago, I started the Pathways Project to help families understand what it is they're walking into and navigate it successfully. So with that backdrop, how would you recommend families start the college process if we're going from a blank, a, a completely blank slate? So what time of the, what time of the, of a child's life, the, the whole soup to nuts, what, how, how would you recommend the perfect college process flow? Best case scenario is that a family really is starting to think about saving for college early on, right? Early on's relative, depending on sort of where you are in your life cycle and your professional life and all those other things. But have some time spent saving for college, but not too long thereafter. Let's say when the student starts to get into high school, let's start having that conversation about what's the price range that's going to be right for us. As a family, you've got more than one kid, maybe. You've got the potential that somebody else in the family might want to go to some other college, graduate school, get some other certification. You may have family plans to expand your business, or you may have family plans to retire. Put all of those things into the mixer and start having the conversation about what's our price range. One of the things that families forget is that their student may very well need to go to graduate school to pursue their career. And they forget about that when they think about paying for college. So put that in the mixer too and start with what's our price range. So as a, as a freshman, as your, your child goes into, goes into high school, hopefully you've already got something going with a 529 plan or some version of, of financial preparedness for college. And then as a, as a freshman, looking at those numbers and really trying to find 
a a range of schools that fit the financial profile that you might that you might fit into. Am I restating that reasonably? That's exactly the next step, right? As a family, one of the things that people do too often is they start looking at the schools before they know their financial situation. And that actually is the wrong way to do this for two reasons. One, because the schools love it when you do that because they can try to get you to swoon over them without knowing the price tag, right? Which is if I were running a college, that's how I'd do it. I'd get you to swoon over my Lamborghini before I tell you that it's a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? Same thing with colleges. They're going to want you to fall for them emotionally. Then to add to that, colleges all play the same game of having a really high sticker price that they think communicates a level of quality. But then nobody pays that sticker price. And oftentimes, not even close to it, tens of thousand dollars less than that sticker price. So stay away from looking at the colleges until you figured out what your price range is, because Again, what colleges won't tell you, you can get a great college education for peanuts, like $20,000 over four years. You can get a great college education for $400,000, right. $1,000 over for four years, right? Everything in between. So once you've figured out what your price range is, then you are much better positioned to start finding out which of the schools that fit that price range. And then which of those schools that fit that price range fits my student. And that makes this process much more rational, much more simple. And you are safe from swooning and then ending up with a crazy price tag that's going to put yourself in really difficult financial straits later. And I'd put the, the phrase dream school in the swoon category of let's not let's not fall for the let's not fall for the dream school. And I love your analogy of the Lamborghini. I've talked about this with clients as the the way the, the traditional college process as I understood it when I went through it for the first time and learned the and learned the hard way. But it 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 starts with financial information you're providing the school. They're dealing they're dealing from that from that rack rate sticker sticker price when what you're talking about and what I've learned the hard way to really reverse that. But where do, where do parents start to find that information? I mean, the rack rate information is available anywhere. Where do, where do families start uh, to decipher, hey, an advertised rate of 50, I can really expect to be into the low 30s or 20s. Where, where, do, where, do, they, where do they get that, that true price? There's a couple of places they can go. Um, and I'm, I'm going to name a number of different sites, and I'll mention TuitionFit as one of them, the, the, the platform that I started, because it really is essentially the Kelly Blue Book of college pricing. You can go on there and find out what are the school's prices for students like mine, meaning students from my similar financial situation and students with a similar academic profile, because those are the two factors that colleges use when they decide what your price is. And like you referenced, if the school already knows that you're relatively well off, they're going to think, well, then we ought to try to get them to pay more, right? It's just a marketplace. And if you were on the school side, you'd do the same thing, right? It's not because you're we're bad people. It's just that's how marketplaces work. And right it's, now- It's a business. Right, it's a business. We're taking the position of how do you help consumers, right? So from the consumer's perspective, you can use TuitionFit, but there's some other sites that are really simple and really helpful. One is called the, the College Scorecard, and it's what the federal government puts out. And you won't see your student's exact price, but they'll show you 
several different average prices across income groups. So if your family's making uh, $110,000 or more, which is, I know, a fairly large category, but then they'll show you the average price for the families at that school where the family's making more than that. Likewise, some smaller numbers like 75,000 to 110, they'll give you an average. And one of the things you'll see in there is if those numbers across these different income brackets are fairly close together, that tells you one thing. But if you go and look at schools that are quite well known and quite selective, what you'll see is when you get to that grouping of families with making a over 110, the number is 20,000 more than any of the other prices. And what that tells you is, okay, if I'm a fairly affluent family and I'm willing to pay 60, 70,000, fine. But if that's not what I want to pay, don't even look at those schools. And this will allow you right away to just cut out some of the ones that the most likely to get us to swoon over, but also the most likely the ones to get us over a barrel if we don't do this process right and end up putting your future financial situation or plans at risk. So an- another uh, another element that I liked, because there's thousands of colleges across the across the country, and I think the ch- choice can be overwhelming with so with so much choice. So yes. in addition to the financial piece, again, speaking from experience, what's been really helpful for our family is to think about colleges from a geographical perspective. Mm-hmm. And if your child or your family has got strong feelings about, I'd, I'd really like to be in a particular part of the country, or I'd really prefer not to be in a particular part of the country, you can lop off big sections of the of the United States to really narrow your focus. And so our our third child is in is in school down in uh, Southern California and he's at a school so that we use that geography uh, tool to to narrow that focus, but he he got two options to go to school in the zone of the country that he wanted to go to. Uh, one was three times the amount of money than the other. And I won't, and I won't name names, but it just, it warmed my heart, uh, both as a parent and a financial advisor that, that when, uh, our son saw those numbers, he, his response to the institution that was three times the, the other one was who do these people think they are to, to be charging this, uh, this amount of, this amount of money. But I think, I think that attitude is helpful as a, as a, uh, an educated, an educated consumer. Uh, so financial geography. So f- we can't talk about the financial piece of it without talking about, and I always mispronounce it. Is it FAFSA, FAFSA, which, which, which is it F first or S first? So this is one of those great things that people <laughs> in the, my world get all bent out of shape about. Yes, it's technically pronounced FAFSA, but why don't we just call it FAFSA <laughs> just to annoy all of those people? Because it doesn't matter. It's a made up word. It's an acronym stands for the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. What folks have heard a lot about, if they've heard about this at all, is different states saying, well, you got to fill it out. And there's a whole bunch of uh, movements to say everybody should fill out the FAFSA. Everybody should fill out the FAFSA. That advice isn't necessarily coming from the folks that are looking out for the consumers. And there's a pretty important piece of this puzzle that I know you want to talk about because you had an interesting experience with it, and I've seen it as well. And that is when you fill out the FAFSA, one, the good thing to, is to do it if you want to have the ability to borrow federal student loans. 
the interest rates are way lower than private loans, they're way lower than the parent plus loan. So if you're going to borrow, the first place you ought to borrow is from the federal government. And they've got now the ways to repay that are brilliant. I mean, you, you can't lose in, in that scenario. However, the question becomes, when do you want to fill this thing out? Some people will tell you that financial aid is a first come, first come, first serve thing. From the federal government, it's not. Anybody who fills out the FAFSA before June 30th, going you know a month and a half away from starting their freshman year of college, anyone that fills that out that qualifies for federal student aid will get that aid. That's the way the government, the, the law is written. So you could fill it out on the 29th and get the same loan that you would if you filled it out October 1st. The question is, when you fill that out, you also send that information to the school. And the question that I think is worth asking is, when do you want the school to know your financial situation? And for people that have not gone through that process and are not familiar with, with what information we're talking about, we're talking about tax return information, home value, equity available in your house. It is no, it is no different, in my opinion, than back to the car dealership analogy. It is no different than walking onto the lot, asking to talk to my friendly neighborhood car dealer and saying, before we get started, here are my tax returns for the last two years. And here's a recent appraisal of my, of my house. Okay. Now let's go on the lot and, and talk about, talk about buying a car. Am I being heavy handed, Mark? No, no, no. My, my preacher father gave me one bit of advice. He gave me lots of its advice, but we won't go there. He gave me one bit of advice. If you're going to go buy a car and you have a couple of cars in your family, Drive the older one to the car dealership when you go to shop. If you drive up in a Lincoln versus if you drive up in a beat up Sentra, they're taking in information and they're making decisions about what they think they could get you to buy that car for. Same thing in the college world. So when you apply to college, now it's a different thing if you're a family that's going to qualify for Pell Grants, if you're going to qualify for state-based need aid, like in Illinois, the MAP grant and the Pell Grant together are a phenomenal way to pay for college if you're a low-income family. But if you're not going to qualify for any of that stuff, then there's a real logic to saying, you know what, I'll fill out the FAFSA when I decide I want access to these loans, but I'm not going to do it and then send that information to the college so the college can see my financial situation and then justify giving less of a financial aid offer to the student. So we've got understand net, understand the actual price, get started, as you go back even further. So far, we've got get started saving as early as possible. Uh, evaluate the financial, the financial resources with the financial fit for the various schools in the geographical region that makes sense for your, makes sense for your child. And then play the financial cards close to the vest during the process to only, only unveil them towards the, in my opinion, towards the very tail end of the process when the school is going to be most motivated to be striking the, striking the best deal. That's a, that's a, that's a recap for me so far. Yes. I think all of that's absolutely true. Now, when you're as a family analyzing your financial situation and trying to come up with what's our price range, it's really helpful then to sit down with somebody who knows the way that the aid system is structured so that they can you know, identify for you, oh, your, your son or daughter wants to go into nursing. There's some scholarship money available in the state for students that want to do nursing. 
that's not connected to this Pell Grant, so you might qualify for it. All of those bits, sure. But once you get past that, then as you get into junior and senior year and then the application process especially, exactly what you said I think really is important advice for people. Hold those cards close to the vest and recognize when you provide data, you're providing a photograph. You're providing a perspective, a, a sort of backdrop that allows the other one, on the, the seller on the other side of that marketplace to make judgments and make decisions about what price they'll offer you. So we're talking, we've mentioned dream schools. We've, we've, uh, we've talked about the the, the fajita uh, form (laughs) uh, and make sure that we want to turn that timing around to not, not lead with the fajita, but we, we, we leave that for the end of the process. All this timing discussion makes me think of er the whole early decision thing. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so t- talk, talk to us a little bit about what your perception about the early decision process is and if that's a, appropriate or not. Does that really put somebody at the front of the line in a preferential uh, place to get into school? So the, the, what we know about early decision is this. The percentage of students that get accepted in early decision is slightly higher than the percentage of students that get accepted in regular decision. Why? Because there's not nearly as many applicants in early decision as there are at regular decision. That's primarily a number that plays in your favor if you really, really, really wanted to go to a particular school. However, there's a giant trade-off here, which is that college is going to say to you, you decided to go early decision, now you're obliged to come no matter what price we give you. Now, nobody's going to show up in the middle of the night and drag your kid off to that school if you change your mind, but you're going to get shamed if you back out of that. So why put yourself in that position? Well, the only reason to put yourself in that position is that you already know that that school's gonna give you a price that is what you want to pay and what you think is fair. And it's a school that your student absolutely wants to go to. It is top choice by a million miles and it's a perfect fit in every other way. If any of those two things are marginally not true, early decision is not for you. So you have to do the whole, you have to do that homework of the, of the true, or keep coming back to that, that, that true net price. And once you're comfortable with that, then maybe early decision makes sense. Maybe it does. Most of the schools that have early decision also have early action. And the only difference is you're not obligated once you get a decision. So why you would pick early decision over early action, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but This is how the higher ed game has become what it has become. And there are schools that are quite well known for this now, like Tulane, for example. Tulane got two thirds of its class through early decision. They go out there and push early decision and get kids to swoon over coming to Tulane. And the families do it, they apply, they get early decision. Every one of them's getting the same letter about, look, you said you were coming if we let you come. So here's your price. Let's go. What are you waiting for? Everybody's excited. They sign on. Here you go. And then what Tulane can do is because there's so few spots left, they can just take all the full pays and all the people that they want to generate as much revenue as possible. What ultimately results is a whole lot of people like green. You're wearing green today. Like, okay, wonderful. 
they're in the green wave, but they're paying far more for college than they needed to pay. And that's the thing we're trying to save people from. So the, the, this is reminding me of uh, one item that I, I want to make sure that I share so that my perspective is, uh, is appropriate in terms of my credentials. So, and again, as a reminder, my, my dad's been a college president for a long time. Uh, the short version of this story is I, I, uh, I made some academic decisions at boarding school that got me in a bad, a bad place personally, as a young person, some of us, some of us do that. And so I was put into a position of having to go to school where my father was the president. That was the only one that would accept me based on my academic degenerate record. So I've, I've some what turned my turn my life around not not entirely very much a work in process but i i am a i feel like i'm a walking talking breathing example of the whole notion that if i don't go to the if i don't get into xyz dream school somehow my life is going to be ruined is just a bunch of nonsense that that an idiot like me that had to, that had no choice but where to go to college other than other than where dad was the president and had to report to study hall on day one of my college freshman year uh life life can life can find itself uh some some balance even with that even with that start so this notion this notion again that that i've got to go to a particular school otherwise life is ruined is just absolute nonsense two pretty useful data points from my many years of being a researcher and studying college students and college success one is 60 years of research over and over and over when you take into account what students do while they're in college, then the name of the school didn't mean anything in terms of their success later. It's because when you start paying for college, you don't get the degree until four years later, right? And an 18 to 22 year old can do a lot of really good or dumb things in those four years. It's those decisions that make the difference. This now gets validated by all of the different studies of CEOs of Fortune 500, Fortune 5000 companies, they look at all these folks and see how many of them got degrees from colleges that you've heard of. And the answer is a tiny percentage. And there's a bunch of community college graduates in there and regional public institutions. It's over and over and over that people are developing at the pace of developing. They grow up, they make choices, life throws them curveballs, they handle it. And come out the other side, we're a pretty widely diverse group, right? So it just doesn't matter. The second thing is, and Gallup studied this in 2015, colleges were selling this idea that, look, if you come to our school, you're in our network. Right. And we got you covered. Once you're in our network, you're always in our network, right? The alumni will take care of each other. The alumni will take care of you. Gallup went out and surveyed thousands of college graduates and asked them, how much did that alumni network help you in your career after college? 75% of the respondents said, didn't matter. Didn't help, didn't hurt, didn't matter. Why? Because they went and did what good adults do. They got a first job, they made a good impression, they got a promotion, then somebody else got another job and they thought, I'll go get another job, or they moved across the country or something happened, and they made who they are. That's great. Weirdly, of that other 25%, more of them said that the alumni network was expressly unhelpful than it was helpful. <laughs> and that's a function of people moving too. If I went to the University of Illinois 
and I'm in Chicago, great. But then let's say I move to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. The University of Illinois Alumni Network's not helping me down there. It's just not because there's not that many folks there. It's not because Illinois is bad. It's because people move and do different things. This whole pitch of our alumni network will carry you is a sales pitch. Makes sense, except for it's not real. Doesn't work. Okay, talking about sales pitches. So we, we've, walked through the, we've walked through the application process. Then the next step is you start receiving, families and students start receiving letters. Acceptance letters. Acceptance letters. Mark, it's acceptance videos now. You're getting acceptance videos. You're not just getting a letter. You're getting an email, you click on it, and it's a video production, and the president or somebody else is, welcome, Mark Corner, to <laughs> our college. We're so happy to have you here. It's a big deal. And typically in those letters or videos, they're going to have a, an offer. Right. A financial offer. And I think it's right. important to remember it in those terms. An, an offer. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the, so the, so scholarships, grants, things, things like that. We're got, there's going to be, I think the, of the, it's going to be a general format of here's the tuition rate and here's the scholarship grant number. And here's what loans are might be available. And, and actually I have seen, it's been a while, but I did see one letter that broke it all down to say your net cost of attendance was zero, even though there was a whole bunch of loans ba baked into it. But, <laughs> but let, let's talk about how to decipher those letters a, a bit. Yeah, first things first with these letters, plan on them not being clear. Just expect that the, the letter that you get isn't going to be clear. Why? It's not because the people at the college can't add. It's because it's a marketing piece of material. You still haven't committed. You still haven't sent them a check. So they're still trying to get you to commit, to come. So the message they're going to send in this financial aid offer is, one, it's going to really emphasize how much aid there is. All this scholarship money, a lot of times they'll tell you, you got $120,000 in scholarship money. And then in very, very small font, it'll say oh, over four years. And if you keep a 3.8 GPA and blah, 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 right? So there'll be all of that. They'll oftentimes weave loans into the aid category and sort of suggest or imply that you don't have to pay it back, exactly like you said. So your out-of-pocket cost is zero, even though there's a ton of loans in there. And I've always thought, like, out-of-pocket, it must be a different pair of pants <laughs> that we're talking about. Because it's not, it, out-of-pocket makes no sense here, right? So one of the things that families need to do, one, go find from other, you'll probably have to find it in other places on your website, but you can usually just Google it and find University of whatever school it is, cost of attendance and find that number because that's the number you got to start from. Right. And then you look at this award letter and you figure out which parts of it are scholarships and which parts of it are loans. And then sometimes they'll throw work study into the award letter mm -hmm. and work study is not guaranteed at all. It's just that you've qualified for it. They'll still subtract it for your number, though, right? Like, you've qualified for this, so therefore it's real. But there's oftentimes not enough work-study jobs on campus or the jobs that are available doesn't coordinate with your class schedule. There's a whole bunch of reasons why you might not be able to take advantage of that. 
So scholarships and grants, we can think about that as discounts. Mm -hmm. So an important, I think another important element of when these acceptance uh, letters and and financial aid offer letters come out is that is a very clear, I'd say that's a crystal clear sign that the, the school or university wants your kid. So the, there, to me, as far as when we talk about negotiation, that is in a very important uh, change in the in the relation in the relationship from applying, uh, keeping my fingers crossed that I get in. Now the school has signaled yes we yes we want you, and they are in our experience anyway. They are schools are quite motivated, and this will of course vary school by school by school, but quite motivated to convert an accepted student into an admitted student. Absolutely, colleges track a number called yield which is the number of accepted students that then choose to enroll. And many schools are seeing that number drop every year. And that means their costs to get their class have just gone up because now they got to get more applicants and more acceptances. And then the school thinks, well, if I accept more of the students, then some of our alumni will think we are less rigorous, less prestigious. So they've got this very difficult dance to play. So once your student has been accepted, one, see that as they want you, and two, see that as the first offer. Amen. Don't see that as, okay, the king has given his permission that you might be allowed into the castle, but you have to come up with this penance. No, it's the first offer. Now, if that school is very popular and has lots and lots of students that want to go there. It's just like, again, buying anything else. I got 10 other people that'll buy that car. So if you don't buy it, somebody will. But most higher education institutions today aren't making their classes. They're not getting enough students and they know they need to get them in the door or they'll never get any revenue from them down in the second, third and fourth year. So they're motivated to work with you to come up with a price that will work. So this is, so again, having lived this with our own, with our own children, uh, the tactic that we have used in, in, at this stage of the process is to go back to the first, the, the honest first choice. So I would say I am decidedly not a fan and don't recommend at all that, that families send out emails to three different schools to say, you're in our top three. And the first one to respond to the, with the best deal is the one that we're going to. I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of that at all. I'm a fan of, of a direct conversation, preferably in person, but over the phone will, over the phone will work to say to, to say to your admissions counselor that you are our number one choice and we need your help in, in making money less of a, less of a factor. So how can you sharpen the pencil? And I know I've seen some resources where you can research scholarships and grants and, 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 and things like that, which I, I, I think being more informed is always a good thing. But I know somebody that went to college on a bagpiping scholarship. Uh, one of our children got it, got, we negotiation worked because they, because of where we lived the, the admissions people at the end of the process said that they were able to sharpen the pencil because they were really trying to get more students from our particular community. And then another one of our kids, uh, we got the pencil sharpened because he was a he that they were, that they told me after the fact that they were his, his freshman class was light 
on male applicants. And so they were able to sharpen the pencil because he was a, he was a male. So it's those experiences that have led me to, to, to figure out, you know, or, or to come to the conclusion, just put it back into their lap. Let, let them juggle whatever they need to juggle behind the scenes in order to, in order to get a, in order to, to get a better deal with the downside being nothing. I, I don't, I think the worst, I think the worst thing that's going to happen is that a school or university will come back and say, no, the, 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 this is the best that we can do. There's no way they're going to say, hey, we're taking back the acceptance letter. So, so the, the import, to me, the importance of at that time recognizing the tables have turned, now is the time to uh, communicate to that school that's your number one choice. You are where I want to go and I will be there in the fall if you can get me to a particular, to a particular point. If you've started this process knowing your price range generally, so you've picked schools that are going to fit in that price range to begin with, then when you get to the end of this process, you really do hold all the cards there. You're an informed, empowered consumer and you have leverage to really make sure that you get to what's the right value for you. If you started the process by swooning over a bunch of schools, not knowing what they're going to charge you, then you're probably going to end up in a pretty difficult spot. And even if you get them to negotiate with you a little bit, they'll move a couple thousand dollars and you needed them to move 30,000. So the negotiation piece really works as this very powerful conclusion to a process where you've already been informed throughout it. But once you set that up, one of the things that you said here is that I thought was really, really smart is, Approach that college as if now you and them are trying to solve a problem together. Don't approach them like now you're the enemy and it's mano a mano and I'm going to beat you like the, you know, 1950s dad in the plaid suit, the used car salesman. But you now approach it as, okay, our child really wants to come to your school. Let's work together to figure out a way to make that happen because we got to get the price into the range that we need it to be in. And then let them ask questions, let them and you, and it might take three or four conversations. It might. And working your way up the organization Mm -hmm. to talk to, to talk to different people. But, but yeah, I mean, so we're talking a lot about money here in this conversation, but, but the, but the truth is the college selection process, money is, is a factor, not the factor fit and, and demographics and a whole bunch of other things go into, go into that process. But money is an important factor. And I think we both, we both agree that the process heretofore needs a, needs a little tweaking and a, and a little, a little, uh, a little turning upside down. The, so could you talk a little bit about the, I'm thinking about a, a, another, a friend of ours in the, in the neighborhood, one of their, one of their kids had a, I'd say a, a, um, a unique college experience that included the beginning of his college experience starting a community college. And he, he's gone on to have just a fabulous, a fabulous college career and is headed towards a, is headed towards a great, uh, a great start in his professional career that started in the, in the community college world. So could you talk a little bit about just the, maybe an alternative path right. to, to college. A four year degree is not necessarily the way to go for everybody. I think this is one of these hidden gems that fortunately now more people are starting to recognize and uh, states, Illinois is one in particular, California is two, has really ramped up the emphasis to both the two-year and the four-year schools that there needs to be 
a really clear, seamless flow. But that's now in place. In Illinois in particular, that is in place. So a student can start their college career at a two-year school for peanuts. It does not cost a lot of money to go to a two-year school. And many of the two-year schools now, especially if you think, well, one of the great examples is the Illinois Pathways Program to be an engineer. You normally think, oh, you got to go to a four-year school to be an engineer. Not so. In Illinois in particular, they've structured this whole thing. So you can do two years at a community college. You get all the courses and all the rigor that you need. You transfer right into one of the state universities, University of Illinois, for example. You graduate in four years. You have an engineering degree for a fraction of the cost. And you are in a much better place. And you've got the same degree that everybody else that graduated from the university only got. Now, there's a, a whole bunch of other programs you can, and professions you can get into where you don't need a four-year degree. And a number of states across the country have made big changes in the last couple of years to remove the requirement for a four-year degree to get a job with that state. Because more and more states have recognized that four-year degree became a sort of little hack that the HR office could use to narrow down the thousands of applications that they'd get. And it was a proxy for something. And it turned out that that proxy just didn't hold, right? Right. And so they started to say, you know what? Maybe we should just dump this. So the community college track, frankly, is one of those tracks that maybe we should be using far more than we are as a society. So if you're thinking, if your student might benefit from that, maybe for financial reasons, maybe for social reasons, they just need to live at home for a couple of years and mature a bit. Yep. Maybe there's a job opportunity locally where they can have an internship and then work in that program while taking classes in the evening. Those are all brilliant ways to do it. We now know, for example, Home Depot, Amazon, Walmart, Chipotle, a whole bunch of corporations now have a tuition reimbursement program where if you go to work for them, they'll pay for you to go to school. Put it on somebody else's dime. Okay, <laughs> sign me up. We got that offer down to zero. That's a legitimate zero out of pocket. Absolutely. And extra pants, because if you work at Home Depot, you get a couple and <laughs> extra pockets. It's a wonderful plan. So get, get, the, get the, the planning process started early. Understand that, it is an, that the college decision is an economic, an economic transaction, which means somebody's trying to sell somebody something. And go, go into that process as educated as you possibly can. Don't be afraid to uh, ask, for, ask for more and appreciate that there are many paths through life. And, and so uh, breaking the bank is not, uh, does not have to be part of the, part of the process. So uh, resources that people might want, uh, want to take advantage of. There's stuff on the fairhavenwealth.com website about college cost calculators. We've got a, uh, we've got a relationship with Mark and his company at Tuition Fit. You can, you can contact them directly. And what were the, what were the, to, to make this a high ethical program, what were the other, what were the other resources that have nothing to do with you or me? Uh, the College Scorecard, which is run by the Department of Education. So our taxes at work. Thank you very much. That's a great place to go to get just some very basic information, not only just about prices across different income ranges, but also get a sense of what income students are making graduating from different programs at different schools. 
And you can start to see, for example, if your student wanted to major in English, there are some schools where you major in English there and the ROI is negative. You major in English over here, the ROI is positive. If you've got a student that wants to be a teacher or any of the helping professions, that's a really important number to pay attention to because the ranges across colleges really are all over the place. And I'll throw out one commercial for tuition fit, and that is if you do have a, if you're a family that's got the acceptance, one of these acceptance letters right now, you're just, you're, you're, that's just where you are in the process. Tuition fit will give you, will help you with some of that information about, about what the average price at the school that you're looking at if you just share that acceptance letter or that offer letter with Mark and his company. And you can do that on their website. Did I, did I present that correctly, Mark? Yeah, I think so. You, you basically you go in and you share your award letter. We anonymize everything. All your personal information is protected and eliminated. So nobody's ever going to have access to that. And because you share, now you get to see all the offers that other students like yours have shared from whatever schools they got into. And so now you can really see how did my offer compare to students that applied to other similar schools, students that applied to the same school you can have a much better sense of, did I get a fair price? Excellent. All right, let's go get some fajitas. Great being with you, Mr. Salisbury, as Dr. Salisbury, as always. Right back at you, my friend. Well, thanks for joining us on another edition of The Local. Who do you want to hear from? You want to tell your own story? Send guest ideas to us at fairhavenwealth.com or click the link in the show notes below. And be sure to subscribe, review, and rate us on your favorite platform. I'm Mark Horner, and I hope you'll join us next time when we cut another episode of The Local. The Local.